ESPN Audio and SC Featured presents a 16-episode podcast, Pin Kings. It's the story of two All-American high school wrestlers, teammates, and friends who ultimately ended up on the opposite sides of the war on drugs. Pin Kings is for mature audiences. Welcome to Episode 8, El Tigre. It just completely, he went off the deep end after that. Just, he didn't care. This is Louis DeCubis, Alex DeCubis' brother. Well, your father came to this country escaping oppression, as it were, and uh, embracing new opportunity, you know, the American dream. Yes. It seems that Alex just sort of threw all that away. Is that how you read it? I don't think he threw it all away. He just had a different outlook in the future on life than myself or so he handled it differently. Just some people cope with tragedy in a different way. He just couldn't handle it. And he just said, I'm not gonna, I don't care what happens to me. I'm gonna do what I'm gonna do what I want. I'm gonna have my own rules now. Kevin and Alex were best friends. Champion wrestling buddies. The heydays of Miami. Alex DeCubis was clearly a kingpin. It's a, it's a tragic story. The less you know, the more you leave. I wanted to take out the biggest drug dealers. If they were catching him, he's going away for the rest of his life. If they don't kill him when they try to capture him. Could you imagine if Kevin has to shoot Alex? He's a sworn federal agent for a drug enforcement agency. Evil goes to jail or evil ends up dead. Welcome to SC Featured Podcast, Pin Kings. My name is John Fish. I'm a producer for ESPN. And I'm Brett Forrest, a senior writer at ESPN the magazine. John, at the end of the last episode, it was 1977, Alex and Kevin were in college. Now, now Kevin, he had survived an early scare at West Point during his plea year, his first year. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, it, everybody knows... That plea beer is really tough. When he gets rid of wrestling, you know, he's able to overcome his academic challenges. Well, his family is all military. Yeah. This was, this was, there's no challenge that Kevin can't overcome. Yeah. And he, he ends up finding a way to thrive in that tough military environment. Alex, on the other hand, had been doing really well on the mat at the University of Georgia. Right. Before suffering a knee injury. So these, these guys, their lives are continuing to parallel each other in almost uh, reverse mirror images. Well, Alex is 10-3. and three. Yeah. He's third the in the mat, SEC. Yeah. As a freshman. As a freshman in a heavyweight division, yeah. wrestling between 190 and heavyweight. But when he, uh, when he injures his knee, it gives him more time for this other thing that he really likes. He really loved Metal Shop. Yeah. That was really his goal, was yeah. to go to the Olympics and be a Metal Shop teacher. Industrial arts, he's always yeah. loved tinkering. That was his thing. Even in high school, yeah. he liked to weld. That's how his brain operated. It's uh, he's a visual guy. Yeah, he was able to figure out mechanical problems. So metal shop. He's got the injured knee. He did well as a freshman. He's already a leader, and it certainly doesn't slow down. Partying in the late seventies in Athens, Georgia. Alex had brought up some of his boys. Yeah, you had Andrew Dewitt, who was. Another Palmetto wrestler, a year right. younger than him. They wrestled in high school together. He brought in Brett Moses, who was also from South Florida. The Miami guys had really found the liking to Athens, Georgia. Yeah, and we uh, we spoke to Andrew DeWitt 
about that time. And he told us about one typical night out with Alex. This would have been September 77. Alex's sophomore year. So here's Andrew DeWitt. You were out with them, right? Well, we were having a party at that house that night where Alex lived. Had some beer and a lot of people came over. And Alex had been drinking. And, you know, the party was heating up, let's say. You know, everybody's having a good time. At some point during the night, the phone rings. Another Georgia teammate of theirs, Brett Moses, picks up the story from there. Hey, Alex, your uncle called you from Atlanta. He goes, I don't need to talk to him. You know, we go back out and we drink some more and we come back. And it's probably maybe 9, 30, 10 o'clock. Alex, your uncle called again. He goes, you know, some expletive him. You know, I'm, in, I'm not in the mood for that. And then the third time we went out some more and drank and we came back and he goes, Alex, your uncle called. And Alex just all of a sudden got stone-faced, looked like he was completely sober. And he went inside and he got on the phone and he was speaking in Spanish. This is Andrew DeWitt. And then Alex came out and he was upset and he was like, he completely sobered up. I overheard him speaking in Spanish. So I don't know exactly what he said. On the phone, one of Alex's uncles had told him his father was sick and then he needed to get on the next flight to Miami. And of course, Alex is concerned. His, his dad he was not the kind of guy who was going to complain over sickness, if he could help it. You know, this was an outgoing guy, a lot of energy. His dad was always the loudest guy at the Palmetto Wrestling Meets. His dad was, in many ways, part of the show at the Palmetto Wrestling right. Meets. Right, and, and remember, this is a guy who'd come to this country from Cuba with five bucks in his pocket and made a real success of himself. This was a tough character. Well, for Alex, he clearly understands that this has got to be something serious. So he leaves the party behind, and he gets on the next flight to Miami. It's a long drive between Athens and Atlanta. Yeah, a lot of time to think. Even though he doesn't know the details, he's... uh, Well, everybody kind of senses something. Yeah, something is wrong. And back in Miami, Alex's mother, Nina, is with his brother, Luis Jr. Here's Luis Jr. I remember I was at home because I was living at home, and I was with my mom, and I remember they called us from the store. The police department um, called, and and my, I remember my uncle was, came over, Uncle Pedro, because he had heard. I don't know, they might have called him sooner, but he came over, and I wanted to go, and then they didn't want us to go my, myself. Alex, well, Alex was still in school, I remember. So then I ended up going to the store. That night, I ended up going. They wouldn't let us in. Alex lands in Miami. His uncle is there to meet him at the airport, and they hop in the car together. And on the way to the house, they drive by a hospital. Alex turns to his uncle and says, Why aren't we pulling in there? I thought you said Dad was in the hospital. The car goes silent. They just keep riding along, and his uncle turns to Alex and says, Your father's dead. Alex's father was at his store in Coral Gables, men's clothing store. This is Scott Chirouse, Alex's close friend. It was around lunchtime, I think late morning, he went in his office and he had a pistol that he, and he shot himself in the chest and, and bled to death on his desk. Alex is confronted with his father's sudden death. But also, he has to face the fact that it's a suicide. Here's this man who was so full of life, who was Alex's principal supporter, and suddenly he's left him all alone in life. 
There's a big crowd at the house when Alex gets home. Family is there. Coach Zimbler is there. Alex's friend Scott Schraus is there. Of course, everyone is in shock. It's a difficult day. Only the first of many difficult days. Yeah, in fact, the next day may have been even worse because that morning, Alex and his brother Luis, they want to see where their father died. The two of them drove to the clothing store in Coral Gables, Don Luis. And I remember seeing all the blood in that office. This is Luis Cubis. When Alex and I saw the blood, we were both cleaning it. He was sobbing really bad, crying. I mean, I was crying, but he was really down on the floor crying. In a bad, he was in a bad time, bad situation. I mean, I, I remember that scene, cleaning that off the floor. It was, it was very hard for me to see that, you know, because I loved Alex. And then to lose a father that was so good to us, I and mean, we had the best father in the world. And all of a sudden, he, when one minute he's gone, and we had nobody to give us, you know, how, do, how are we going to live our lives in the future now? Alex is 20. Luis Jr. is 21 years old. They're on their hands and knees, and they're scrubbing their father's blood from the floor. That is a so powerful horrible. image. Horrible. Yeah. Horrible. I mean, you can, you can just imagine that the blood is it's all over their hands. It's soaking their pants. It's, you know, they're having this real physical interaction with the reality of their situation, and they're both wondering why their dad killed himself and, and, and you know, why he ripped the whole family apart. Well, the police recovered several letters at the scene. Suicide notes that Lewis Sr. had written to each member of the family. Here's Lewis Jr. My suicide note said that my dad, he said to me in that note that he, he, was, he wanted to be successful in life and he wanted to be the best father he could be. But he knew that he was going to go out of business. And he gave us everything we wanted. Nice cars, we lived in a nice home. He knew that was going to be taken away. And he, he, knew, he told me in that letter the creditors were going to come after him. And he said this is the only way, by committing suicide, that he was able to shield us from all those issues. I remember specifically in that letter how he said he had too much pride, and he worked so hard, and he just had too much pride to lose everything. And, and he just couldn't deal with us not having anything. Losing the house, losing the cars. He just had too much pride, and he felt by doing this, it was going to help us in our lives, make it easier. In the letter to Alex, his father told him to, to grab life with gusto, to go out and get it and be successful. And he called him his tiger. El Tigre. El Tigre, just like he would yell out at the wrestling matches. Alejandro, Alejandro, El Tigre. And this letter, which represent the final words that his father will ever speak to him. I mean, obviously they have a profound impact on Alex, but they also terribly confuse him. Alex really did not want to believe that he almost like he would, it would have been way better if this was an elaborate plan to make it look like a suicide that was really a murder or a robbery or that sort of thing. This is Scott Schraus. He was a bit in disbelief that his father could leave like that. I don't, at that exact moment, probably not angry, but maybe later on. On the other hand, it's, he, didn't really, he didn't talk about it a lot. There was the letter there, the, the home had this you know, tragic atmosphere, and his mom you know, said, if, you know, within a few days, go back to school, go back to Georgia, and he did. 
When Alex returned to school, his friends gathered around him. One friend in particular, Andrew DeWitt, he had a unique perspective on what Alex was going through. He had lived, unfortunately, exactly what Alex was going through. Yeah, because when Andrew was wrestling at Palmetto High School with Alex and Kevin, his own father disappeared. The family, police, everyone was looking for him for quite some time, and, and they never found him. But eventually, police learned that on the day of his disappearance, Andrew's father had, had gotten on a boat with a couple guys. And when they sailed a bit off the coastline, these two men murdered Andrew DeWitt's father, and they dumped his body overboard into the ocean. And who was at wrestling practice to comfort Andrew DeWitt? Yeah, because this happened during wrestling season in high school. And they were in the same weight class. So younger Andrew DeWitt would go against Alex. Yeah. Alex was there from an emotional standpoint for Andrew DeWitt. Yeah, Andrew was coming into the wrestling room in practice right at that time when he was dealing with all of that. And now Andrew DeWitt had matriculated and was a college teammate of Alex's at the University of Georgia. Do you remember what that was like, seeing him again? Well, he was different from that point on. Much quieter, serious, just very different. Hurting, hurting very badly. Didn't talk a lot about it. Eventually, yeah, I mean, he broke down one, one night with this close group of friends. And we were like, you know, get, get it out of you, man. What did he say? He wanted us to shave his head. And we shaved his head, and he started getting very emotional and we were just like you know get it out of you man you know it's okay Alex really has one thing in life that he can turn to he goes back to the wrestling mat his knee still has issues but he starts to compete again Andrew DeWitt explains how Alex handled sports right after tragedy had upended his life you talk about athletes who can go out there and turn the focus on and there's no pressure on them you know, he just felt such pressure in everything he was doing. And he, he, he wrestled tight. I remember I remember one of the matches, he just didn't look good. And I don't ever remember Alex not looking good. You know, he might have gotten beat a couple of times, but, you know, he went after it and gave it to the guy. You know, he's losing some matches that probably should, certainly wouldn't have lost had he been the committed, focused athlete that he was. After Alex's father died, he wanted to keep wrestling. This is Scott Shiraz. It's like the kind of thing, that's what you do. You know, he was a wrestler through and through at that point. His dad wanted him to be a wrestler. And it probably would have continued. Between the injuries, and I remember his knee was so bad, he hit a, he hit a threshold on a door, a door sill, and took his knee out. And it becoming apparent that wrestling wasn't going to work. And then it's sort of, then it's a little bit of a lost soul. Andrew DeWitt again. My father died tragically when I was in high school on the, in the middle of wrestling season. Alex saw me come to practice with a heavy heart and try to work through it. And, you know, I can remember that Alex was, you know, a, a friend. I and mean, we weren't close friends, but Alex felt for me. I, I knew that. And, you know, he tried to pick me up at the time and, and do things. So, you know, I, I understood that, having the shoe on the other foot. His heart was broken, and it just it changed him. It confused him. He might have been a crazy guy, but he was always focused of he wanted to do things in his life, 
have experiences and learn. He just very confusing when his father died. It was basically like tearing a piece of your, you know, tearing an organ out, tearing your lung out. A chunk of him left. Well, Alex really had some good friends at Georgia. Well, it was very evident that things had changed for Alex. He had, he wasn't handling things well. Scott Shiraus explains more. He had some good friends at Georgia, but he, you know, he was spiraling into crazier and crazier stuff that only a couple of guys would be part of. It's not that difficult to understand, is that you take a guy that never lost, a guy that is physically really strong, you know, deadlift 600, squat 500, bench press 400, and the agility of a ballerina, and doesn't care. So you take these things, and if there's a dare or whatever's happening, he'll do it. Didn't seem to feel physical pain very much. I remember we were four-wheeling one time, and we got out to watch him try and make it through this sort of slough, and he tried to do it at about 30, and the Jeep just came to a halt where when his face hit the steering wheel, his teeth went through, through, the, through his lip, you know, where his teeth was sticking out the other side. And he laughed, and he backed up, and he went faster, and he made it. What can you not do? You know, any clown could open a beer bottle with his teeth, so he'd open the beer bottle, he'd chug it, and then he'd take a Heineken bottle and put the end in his mouth and snap it off and chew the glass up and swallow it. And that was his idea of a good joke. By this point, his sophomore year has progressed, and Alex, he's, he's really losing interest in wrestling. He's drinking more, he's going to class less often, and he's having some money troubles. He had moved out of the little house with his teammates. Yeah. He's living in a trailer down by the river. Yeah, he's, he's sort of isolated himself, and he's not the fun-loving guy he'd always been. But he always had a friend in Scott Shirouse. Well, they knew each other. Wrestling had always been their bond, even though Scotty was the older, the older friend. They had this unique relationship. Here's Scott. I moved over to Andros Island in the Bahamas, and I was working. The, there's a Navy base there where they do testing with nuclear submarines. So I was working on some of the research boats. That was a transit place for drugs, a lot of drugs coming by freighters, by airplanes. A friend of mine said, hey, you know, there's sometimes this pot doesn't always make it all the way to the U.S. Some of it ends up there. People steal it or they lose it or for whatever reason. I bought 100 pounds of pot for $30 a pound, $3,000. And I borrowed a friend's boat over there, a 21-foot open fishing boat. And I went the 220 miles back to Miami, put it in two carry-on bags and got on an Eastern Airlines flight shoved it in the overhead baggage compartment, flew to North Dakota, sold it for 380 a pound, and thought I was a millionaire. North Dakota? Why North Dakota? I was offered 330 a pound in Miami, but another friend called his cousin in North Dakota and said, I can give you 380. So for the extra 5,000, I got on the airline flight and, you know, and, uh, and nothing could ever happen except it was the pot was in plastic bags, and when it slammed the uh, overhead bins tight, the whole plane reeked of marijuana. But this was the good old days before. They didn't even check your ID to get on a flight, and no, no security, no whatever. 
what could possibly happen. This was Scott's first drug deal, and it turned out the first of many drug deals for Scott Schraus. So when I first started doing this on Andros, it wasn't with the idea that this is going to be an ongoing deal, a lifelong uh, endeavor. It was just sort of just so simple, so easy, and so profitable. It's so an imagine taking $3,000 and turning it into $30,000. And this is $30,000 when you could buy a condo for $30,000 or, or two Mercedes for $30,000. So it was a lot of money in the 70s. Spring break, sophomore year at Georgia, Alex leaves, he, he, he comes home to Miami, and uh, along with his brother, Louis, he's helping, he's helping their mother get through the trauma of his father's death. He's also hanging out with Scott Shiraz. And one night, John... Fun things happen <laughs> when Alex and Scott Shiraz yeah. hang out. Yeah, uh, fun. Good, good way to, to, to term it. <laughs> so Scott, Scott is with Alex at, at Scott's house, and he says, hey, Alex, come back to the garage with me. I, I, I need your hand here. And he asks Alex to sling some kind of some kind of bail over his shoulder and Something carry it out to the car. Something kind of big that only a Division One wrestler could sling over his shoulder yeah. very easily. And they, he carries it out to the car. Well, they take a drive. They deliver the bail to the guy, and Scott hands Alex a thousand, one thousand five hundred dollars. Alex has no idea what just happened, but he would soon learn. Alex and I shared pretty much everything. So when he was at college, he knew what I had just done. And again, I thought it was a bit of a one-time thing, but then with Alex's father died, that put more of a financial burden on the family. So he was on an athletic scholarship, but you still have living expenses, just regular college sort of expenses. Since I was on a Navy base, they didn't check the mail. The mail went onto an airplane straight into U.S. Postal Service in the States. I could buy a pound of marijuana over there for next to nothing, wrap it up tight, put it in the mail, send it to the University of Georgia. Vince Dooley's football players, knowing Alex was from Miami, would had already previously said, hey, can you get pot? Can you do this and that? So now all of a sudden he could, and it was a 100% profit. They would trade him tickets to the football game. They would buy it. They would whatever, you know, but he had a little a bit of a minty, mini entrepreneurial business going at University of Georgia. Alex has taken a big step. He's gone from Division I athlete, Olympic hopeful, to a drug dealer. His dad was really the only person he had to answer to in regards to, you know, doing something conventional with his life. This is Brett Moses. Once his dad was gone... I don't think he had anything to stop him from, you know, leaning over to the other side and, you know, becoming involved in drugs. There was nobody that mattered that much that would be that disappointed if it went wrong. You know, I mean, of course, his mom to a degree, but it's not the same as your dad, who you're kind of living, wanting his respect and enjoying his attention. So I think his dad dying kind of removed the obstacles to him taking the choices in life that he did. One of the really interesting aspects of Alex's story is his brother, Louis Jr. They're only 11 months apart. They grew up under the same roof. They played the same sports. They both wrestled for Barry Zimbler at Palmetto High School, but they had wildly different reactions to their father's suicide. Here's how Louis Jr. understands it. I think he took it harder because our personalities are different. I wanted to really help my mom and try to see what we could do, how, what we had to do with the business. 
are we going to sell the store, go out of business? And since he wasn't day to day there, like I was there working during the summers, I was there more than he was because he was away at college. He really didn't see that. Everybody reacts different when there's a trauma in their lives. I think he, it, it affected him different. I mean, I took it just as bad. My dad just committed suicide. It just, I realized that I had to, you know, deal with it differently. Help my mother. How are we gonna, what are we gonna do with the business? A little more serious about it, where he's like, he felt like he lost his best friend, and now what he was gonna do. So he kind of like said, screw it. I'm gonna live my life. These two brothers reacted to this tragedy essentially in opposite ways. Lewis Jr., he sells toothbrushes for a living. Yeah, wild, huh? When you compare the two. Oh yeah, he he works in Procter and Gamble, but he's in he's in sales. Yeah, he <laughs> Yeah, I guess they they both were in sales in, in some respect. But back to Georgia, Alex Alex wrestles through his sophomore year. Well, he has a he has a middling, I guess would be the term, sophomore year. Yeah, he's, he's still doing it. He's still injured. You can't be injured and half into wrestling. You're yeah. either in or you're out. And he meets with his coach, George Reed, and he says, I'm gonna quit the team. Here's Coach George Reed. For Alex, you know, I think wrestling was very important. And it was obviously a very important part of his life. You know, once he lost that, you know, he lost structure. I also think he lost an awful lot when he lost his father. So the combination of the two things weren't good for him. Alex comes home to Miami after the sophomore year, and he never goes back to the University of Georgia. Here's Scott Shiraz. Alex's father's death, where, where Alex had been this wild and crazy, exuberant, fun-loving kid, and a little, a little crazy, but crazy maybe within some bounds. He really, I mean, he, and he told me he, was a, he didn't care if he lived or died. So, and you take a guy that's already a little bit crazy, who feels a little bit invincible, because he basically had never been beaten at anything. And you, anyway, so you combine these attributes, and he, and he became just, I don't care. He arrives in Miami in the summer of 1978, the exact wrong time. The drug trade is beginning to infiltrate every walk of life of Miami. Marijuana smuggling had been kind of the norm, but now the trade was beginning to transition to something more serious cocaine. At the time, cocaine was selling for $50,000 a kilo. It's a lot of money. And here comes Alex, a smart guy. He's physically intimidating. He speaks he's, Spanish. He's bilingual. He's a total extrovert. Everybody knows him. He's a, he's a, a, a sports hero in town. And two other important aspects here. Alex has already gotten a taste of the easy money. And now... He has nothing to lose. Thank you for listening to the SC Featured Podcast, Pin Kings. You can follow Pin Kings on Twitter at ESPN Pin Kings. That's at ESPN Pin Kings. A preview of the next episode follows this message. Next on Pin Kings, Episode 9, Zip 6. Come on. The Cocaine Cowboys... 79, why you gotta pay the JoJo money? So I go flying through the air and hit the water, this huge explosion when they hit the water and you know, it was just, man, it was incredible. He sent a team of Indians to Miami, basically just like the end of Scarface, 
where the team of Indians comes to get Tony, and now they're after me. Don't miss an episode. You can listen and subscribe to the Pin Kings podcast in the ESPN app or download and listen on Apple Podcasts.